0: Welcome to Surviving Society with
1: Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis
0: executively produced by Georgia Forey Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon.
1: If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing.
0: Good
2: evening, good afternoon, good day. I'm Addo's in the studio and I'm the executive producer of Surviving Society. And here are some of my favourite clips from the
0: year he got in the far right I think. always 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 <laughs> bringing in the <laughs> far right I think it's I think that's a record see is that the first 10 always. minutes let you've me, got in the far right always. No,
3: well, yeah. always talking about the enemy on this show, as in what they say or no, how they use I mean one of the things around the idea of progress is that the idea of progress had to be brought into being in order to justify the processes that were going on because in a sense you know what you have in the early movement of Europeans to the lands that come to be known as the Americas is initially processes of trade and commercial exchange and so on and then very quickly processes of um, dispossession annihilation and settlement upon those territories and so on so how do you begin to justify that? One of the ways in which it was justified was to say that by traveling across space, Europeans thought that they were always also traveling back in time and that the people they encountered in these new lands were their ancestors. Why was it important for them to think of these people as their ancestors? Because it meant that they were their future, that the Europeans were the future of these people. And if the Europeans embodied the future, then it didn't matter if you annihilated these people because they were the past anyway. So it becomes a form of justification for the dispossession that goes on. And that is something that runs right through to development studies in the present, because there are no developing countries. There are countries that were formerly colonized and have been made poor as a consequence of these processes. But to not acknowledge the role of colonialism in the construction of developing countries is what naturalizes poverty and makes it then seem, oh, well, we can just help them because we're good people. No, if we recognize that these are formerly colonized countries, then they're poor because we as formerly colonizing countries are rich through that same process. So we could think about it in terms of redistribution of a different form.
4: Slightly off into another tack to say, yes, what they always say is state of nature. And then they say, but of course, the state of nature is a fiction. (laughs) to think of what the state of society was like, but insofar as there is anybody close to the state of nature, then these are the people who are living close uh, to the state of nature. Part of what we wanted to do in the book was to say the state of society is a fiction, Mm -hmm. and to, in a sense, develop and extend the idea of the fictions that we use to organize our thinking and what the consequence of those fictions are in the lives of others. And I think what makes uh, colonialism so important in the modern, or the legacy of colonialism so important in the the modern day, it is the primary uh, process of the taking of land into possession, the creation of a private property right in land that transcends the claims of those who live in the area that is taken into position. And it asserts that the rule of law is about affirming the property right in land. That in some ways, although we think of, well, capitalism has incredible consequences for global warming in terms of the consumption of um, you know, carbon and so on. But most of the things are being consumed have to be extracted from the land through private property. So colonialism is absolutely, and the uh, institutions it brings into the modern world is absolutely central to understanding the current climate crisis.
3: It's thinking about what is politics for? What are we hoping to achieve through what it is that we're investing our time in? and. The only politics that it's worth investing in is an inclusive politics that seeks to make a difference to the lives of everybody and thinking about the ways in which inequalities are structured and if we can address those inequalities that actually determine the quality of life and the life chances of the people who are suffering as a consequence of particular types of inequalities, then we're also going to be addressing those constituencies that we might also be sort of particularly attached to and so on. So it's only by having an inclusive politics that we can address the inequalities that have been produced by the exclusive politics of the past. So, if we, rec- you know, so in that sense, I don't think it's too much of a stretch. Like, it's not that complicated to think that the inequalities that exist in the present are a consequence, often, of colonial histories and legacies. They can be addressed, but they can't be addressed using the tactics of those who produce those inequalities. They have to be addressed inclusively. And so we can, we can do both. We can have a critique that acknowledges what produces us in the present. And we can think about a politics beyond that. And that's the thing that I feel is missing a little bit.
0: I think Gaminda a gets a Simon Society mic drop for yeah, that. Sorry, John, you were in the running, <laughs> but Gaminda gets it. Gaminda gets it. <laughs> Tell us about what you've been doing since oh, you finished your PhD. Oh
5: forgot. Ha ha ha. So in in, in 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 the Welsh government. So one of my roles was um they're slightly they're, they're more progressive, I guess, than the English government in a mm-hmm. sense where they they had a black, Asian minority ethnic um working group. Um and Wales is a devolved nation as well, yeah. isn't it? So yeah. they so can control nation. they can control their education. Yeah. system. So they created a working group where essentially they wanted to make it like not compulsory but make black asian and minority ethnic contributions and histories a crucial part of everybody's um, curriculum and i think that that was so important so again um that provided a great way to apply the phd knowledge in a way that was quite practical and seeing it in policy um, so they're currently in a process of implementing that so it was it was it was great to just be a part of that that group. Wait,
0: right, I'm just gonna just make it clear for the listeners because you're not bigging yourself up enough <laughs> April Louise worked for the Welsh government as one and was one of the key people to ensure that the Welsh education system now has to include black history in their curriculum I wouldn't say key people but yeah or I'm saying key people (laughs) Welsh Government write to us if you want to if you want to dispute that write to us (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
5: and you know and even the Welsh Government are also doing a thing called the Race Equality Action Plan so they recently you know Went to went to consultation. So Did Jason? Did Jason work with you on that? Yeah. He he advised for
0: the education sly part. Swire alumni Jason Arday has also been part of this yeah. as well.
5: So Wales is essentially Wales is doing quite amazing things and more progressive stuff than England is. S-
1: sorry, April, we see when you say Black History, it's in Black History it relates to just Wales or Black History. History black Our histories related, uh,
5: black hi- oh, in. Yeah, but as in relate to Wales, as in like because okay. you know there's black people, there's Asian people. Yeah,
1: yeah,
5: okay. To Singapore. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Oh.
5: It was the safe port? Yeah, yeah. yeah, Well, not yeah. even just a safe but just like why we're there, like our contributions. Okay, yeah,
1: yeah. I yeah. Think...
5: And, but not just within history, but within, they're trying to make it like within all of the curriculum. Oh, sick. And yeah, not yeah. just, you know, on um, Black History Month. Not just in October. Yeah, 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 not just in October. Yeah. <laughs> and there's like the race council, Um, they had Black History Month 360, 365, sorry. So that was like meant to be for the whole year That's doing sick. stuff. So there's, there's a lot of active stuff in terms of like trying to... Yeah, th- at, at, least at, at least trying. At least trying. Get me? Yeah. yeah this yeah. is it. So it's exciting stuff happening mm. in Wales mm. and it'll be exciting to see what actually changes. Well, and listen, what man might come through. Might come you to should to come, through. come through. Like, what's, I mean, what's the weather am it's, it's similar to England. Is it? Yeah. A yeah, yeah. bit wetter, or? Usually, but you know, it's summertime. So if, you want, <laughs> if you don't want the bad weather, come in summertime. Okay. <laughs> um, What's really interesting about when you moved yeah. to
0: Wales, like Louise, I remember you telling me, right, Shantelle, I'll finish my PhD, mm. I'm gonna go work for the Welsh government. And I'm like, okay, babe, like you'll be great wherever you go. But Wales, like, as in Wales, is obviously I I've spent spent a lot of time in Wales as yeah. a young person. Where Wales? Where like, in Wales? Um, Aberystwyth, Swansea. Wow, you went in. Well, I went to school in the West Midlands, didn't I? Oh, yeah, so yeah, it's yeah. not far. But um, <laughs> I was like, you're so brilliant. Like, I feel, I, I don't know how I feel about you leaving academia, like mm. we need you, but you definitely needed a break. But then one of the things you told me that just made me think, oh my God, this ma- it's a sign, was that you found your name, didn't you? Oh, okay, uh, so there's the history of that. The okay. history, so, you found
5: your name that had a history in Wales. Yeah, so Pennant, my surname, or it's, they say Pennant. Pennant. It means um, head of a stream or head of streams. It also means, you know, a triangular flag. And it also means it's a type of slate because the pennants owned a slate quarry, so the slates that came out of there they call it pennant slate. So, anyway, I've always known that my name, my surname, had um, Welsh connections and links. Um, and I always wanted to at some point go to explore and understand more about it because there's previously been documentaries that other pennants have done. So also the name pennant is not very common. So say other names such as like Campbell or Johnson or Jones, like pennant is quite distinct. So there's, I know there's pennants in Nottingham, there's pennants in London, oh, that's my branch. And I know there's some <laughs> in America as well, and obviously Jamaica, which is where um, that we're from. So essentially um, I was part of this North Wales Jamaica Society, which is a group. And they are aware of the links between Wales and the Caribbean. So essentially, Wales has an interesting, unique history, right? So they've always had, especially in Tiger Bay and Cardiff, it's always been very multicultural. You know, it's close to Liverpool, and that's where there was a big slave trade in port. So that's one of the things that attracted me to go. Like, it's not going to be completely just white, although the Welsh government was quite white. But in terms of where I live, it's very multicultural. So, um, you know, I always wanted to... Discover and understand more about those Welsh connections based on my surname. And when I got the chance to go, that's why like I always say that Wales called me, I didn't really call Wells. So when I got the chance to go, that's how I was like, oh, okay, like maybe now it's time to eventually have a time to explore it. So I didn't know when it was going to be, I didn't know how. And then there was a journalist from the Times who contacted the North Welsh Jamaica Society um asking for they were doing um a story about national trust buildings Mm -hmm. and houses and just the fact that they had started to you know look at their links to slavery a lot of these lovely nice country houses and castles are actually been built by the wealth from um, enslaved africans in the caribbean through her contacting me I also already wanted to do this trip so there's Penring castle in Bangor, which is North Wales and that was um and they have a huge estate but that was the white Pennants. that was their symbol of the wealth that was generated from the plantation so they had six plantations in Jamaica two in terms of I think two there was two why was there two I don't know what it was two but there was two I guess that they had pictures of and documentations of it um and essentially I with the journalists from the Times, we did a podcast where we journeyed to Bangor to see the castle. We also got to see the archives. So the family has given a lot of their documents to Bangor University's archive. And we also got to see the vast estate which included mountains that they once owned. So my understanding is that they've given Penring Castle to the National Trust, but they still own some of the land. They also still own some of the items which are within the castle. And you know, to this day, (laughs) I'm just thinking about the generational wealth that has been accumulated, um, and also the fact that you know, when they had the Slavery Compensation Act, I think it was in 1837 or Mm -hmm. something like that. um, the British government did not finish paying off slave owners until like 2015. Yes. But myself, one as one of many pennants, all we have to show for it is our name. So 350 plus years of, you know, forced free labour generated a significant amount of wealth where a castle was able to be built. They were able to buy mountains and huge, um, you know, land. They also were able to buy the quarry mine. So it created a thriving um you know community a thriving um wealth for local communities to live off. So there was mining communities and everything like that. So it was interesting. <laughs> Going. How do you feel about him? I don't know. It's it's kind of like looking at a drug dealer's ill gotten gains and the castle as like a the castle became like it's, it's, it's a symbol it's a monument and what also was interesting is the fact that to this day yes they do temporary exhibitions but they don't have like a proper monument even though they're now aware of where the money has come from there's not really any monument or any acknowledgement of the enslaved African, who's you know who's who's whose labor mm. provided Babe, the but i think
0: you need to
3: Invoice.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so me, uh, invoice. Well, guess, receipts are there. I'm sorry, so but receipts are there. But this is
5: Reparations. Quite <laughs> Reparations. But that's the thing. Reparations is not just about the money thing. It's, yeah, it's, it's basically mind. like restorative justice, yes. and that includes essentially like trying to help the person or the people to get back to where they were before. Mm-hmm. Right? So I see this part as disrupting my history because obviously I am here. I have this surname because of them. And I understand that, you know, some other slave owning families got rid of their documents and didn't want to acknowledge it. So I will say that it's a good step that, you know, the white pennants have decided to give the um estate or some of the castle to the National Trust. But apparently we were talking to a historian that was also just to avoid inheritance tax, I just
0: said nonsense. Did you told me to say nonsense, <laughs> <laughs> it is nonsense. Some of the stuff is nonsense, yeah. but yeah, mm. Tonna. I think you might be the first comedian we've ever had on the
1: show 100%.
0: Well, obviously, where
1: well, I don't think I, well, <laughs> out of all of us, I think George is the funniest one.
0: I think George is probably the funniest yeah, one. Why funny. do you look annoyed? Why has that annoyed you? This got on it, listeners, honestly, George just gets
1: he's, just... like no, he's like, he's like an angry. Elf. <laughs> <laughs> ouch! Ouch!
0: Ouch. That's sorry. so that's so Wait, listen, listen, <laughs> listen. Oh. listen. He's attacking he's attacking Tiso now. Twana, I'm so sorry about these guys.
2: On Twitter I follow lots of kind of like people in like social workers and all all, all that world. And it was silence. There was silence for ages. So like even when like the police, the met, like the Metropolitan Police were going, Oh, we black, black like black. that and then you're like, Oh my gosh. I do you haven't met black people yeah. today. <laughs> you know what I mean? We recognise about how the how <laughs> structural rate, and all this, yeah. you know. Like, so the Met police have come out, you know, yeah, they've yeah. said stuff. Like everyone's everyone's sort of said their bit social work twitter was just like it was literally was like it was crickets it was awful (laughs) and then somebody just piped up and was like um mentioned george floyd and then some i was like this is the us right fair enough that you've acknowledged this thing but even like institutions in the uk have recognized that we're in that we're in the uk and we're not america and all the rest of it and it's like still and then like people were just like and then it slowly came, and I was thinking, you lot of rubbish. Yeah. This is really mm-hmm. dreadful. Seeing so you know, that, you know, like in terms of like class and race, like the majority of children in care are like working class. And even, like, it's not even working class, it's below what it's like, yeah. it's, it's deprived people yeah. basically. Yeah. And then you throw in some race and ethnicity, and it's just like disproportionately affects poor. Um, black black kids, and brown yeah, people, right, yeah. and you, you know, it's just like it's it's not, it's not good. And you're like, you're like just going, yeah, there are. You're like, this is dreadful. It's 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 just it just it's it, so that's it, the levels of
0: race neutrality that you yeah. get. Like that because they're
2: like we like we haven't got time to engage in that because basically we need to get children out of bad situations, and so we haven't got time to look at. All of this other stuff. When you can turn around, and, turn around and say, actually, children get taken into care for lots of different reasons but one of the common threads that runs through it all is, is poverty, literally. Yeah. It's not it's, it's not the thing that presents, but it's there. Yeah. You know, it's it's it's, it's a, so you know, like babies getting taken into care are usually from like deprived areas. Do you know what I mean? It's just like this stuff is not it's not rocket science actually.
1: I guess this is this is a zeitgeist, right? So right now, Black Lives Matter, the the global pandemic, all these have opened up fissures that Makes you make institutions look at themselves, right? But institutions we know are institutions by definition because they're slow and lumbering Mm. and big, they're not good at looking at themselves Mm. and being reflective and
0: racist and
1: racist. (laughs) So, no, it's definitely, yeah. So, but so
0: I guess, but one of the zeitgeist tea before you just carry on that I think you're drawing on as well is obviously abolition mm. part of the abolitionist movement is abolish social services, abolish care system.
1: What I was going to say, sorry, see, I think. At the moment, there's a groundswell of people like we had on the podcast on the show that that is moving in that direction. But obviously, that, to quote G-Man here, "What date? the time? People want the people want this now, mm. but there's it's a slow process, man." Yeah, when and is, when, when, it, is when, when is freedom? When is freedom? Mm-hmm. And and in this process, because it's a real life thing, kids are suffering, right? Yeah. And that's and that's the madness. That's yeah. a, that's the sadness of it all, right?
0: It's not in our lifetime, sorry guys, but we can work towards it.
6: So as I usually describe it, unfortunately, I don't have like a big story. Like some people will say, oh, it was the 2014 Gaza war. That was usually something that brought a lot of people in. Where over um, 2,500 Palestinians were killed in the course of like 50 days, 19,000 homes destroyed. But for me, it was more so a s- slow accumulation of events and experiences and meeting people. Um, but I also would be remiss to not mention my mum. And I think that really has been a massive process um in my development, because although my mum has never been political, although now she, back in 2019, she joined a Ladies for Corbyn, I think, a Facebook group <laughs> and would argue with people. But it's really been, and she's never been political, but is a bit now, but it, it's really been her kind of care and generative process and has really been probably, especially now in terms of like, looking at the politics of love with bell hooks, looking at like abolitionist politics. I mean, she really is an idol for me, one of the most selfless people ever. So, it, and, and when we were poor, I mean, she was a single mum with me for like, I mean, my sister for quite a long time, and she's always cared for the me and my younger siblings. And that's that kind of um, process of care and reciprocal love, as I think really did impact me on a really subconscious level, which I don't think I would have developed the politics that I did now um, and through university because I really only started to get political when I got into university and I didn't realise until kind of last few years and reflexively looking back that I think that was a massively important process to my development and finding feminist politics and then finding anti-racist and abolitionist politics but really it's less kind of interesting as I say it was a c- accumulation of events like at university joining left-wing societies a lot of comrades were kind of pro-Palestine and then I think again Palestine is one of those things which resonates with so many people
0: What does Angela Davis call
6: it? Uh, yeah Palestine <laughs> is the litmus test
0: Palestine is the litmus test Wake um, up Angela
6: Davis obviously Oh yeah well she has an amazing book called Freedom is a Constant Struggle and she's always drawing upon the Palestinian cause I mean it's something which right back in nineteen 19- Edward Said's famous book, The Question of Palestine, was one of my favourite quotes from him. But he says um, that Palestine is is known as a rallying cry um, for peoples around the world, anti-imperialist, anti-racist national independence movements. And he has a line where he says, um, the idea of resistance gets content and muscle from Palestine. In a better way, the microphysics of oppression can be understood in new and dynamic ways from looking at Palestine and the Palestinian struggle. And so I think that's also why it's brought me to that and then because of its more global dimensions and this is always what I try to say to people is that And even Palestinians themselves are saying this, right? I mean, there's a very long history of understanding these forms of resistance. Um, The PLO organised with the Black Panther Party. You had people like George Habash and people from the PFLP, which is the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, writing op-eds in the Black Panther newspaper. Um, In fact, it was really Palestinian cause, which is where the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee uh, split with the main black freedom movement I think in 19- 1964 and that was over Palestine and their support for it and the Black Panthers were always supportive of Palestine. You have people, pictures of Huey P. Newton in Lebanon training with the PLO but you also have um, people like Nick Estes who's a um, indigenous writer in the United States and he's got a great book called Our History is the Future and he talks about how there was massive links between the American Indian movement and mm-hmm. red power movements in Palestine as well. Yeah. And so it's always had these more global dimensions and connections. And so I think that's part of the reason as well why I ended up getting into Palestine, because I don't see Palestine as a project of something that's just over there. I see it as part of my socialist ethic. I see it as part of my class politic. I see it as part of my anti-racist project. Because the liberation of Palestine will have so much more global and dynamic effects for liberational movements around the world um that i think it speaks to me and many others in such kind of profound ways to do that and that's kind of what a lot of my research and with activists and part of campus and palestine action is why they're doing the actions that they are it's because they see it as part of this broader network of liberational kind of alternatives and praxis
1: so should liberation of palestine be framed in the same way as blm the me too movement should it be should it be framed in that way
6: yeah completely i think it, it needs to be understood as a cause of liberation um, as a cause of anti racism, as a cause of decolonization. There's a lot of these talks of decolonization now, as I said before, but not only in a kind of ideological sense and an educational sense, but also in a material sense. So there's the struggles that we see, um such as the Idol No More movement, Standing Rock and things. And you go to Standing Rock and there were Palestinians there. Um, Angela Davis specifically talks about how in things like Ferguson, when the affairs of Ferguson, like revolts and rebellions were happening, um the police department had t- been trained by or gone to be trained in Israel sure. um, and a lot of police departments in the United States are trained in Israel or trained by kind of Israelis which do a lot of counterinsurgency tactics and police kind of um, protesting kind of counterinsurgency tactics but it was um, Palestinians that were sending advice to she says this in freedom is a constant struggle There was Palestinians that were tweeting over advice to the protesters in Ferguson of how to deal with the tear gas because the tear gas was produced by the same company that was being used in the West Bank against them. So this is another way which BDS you can see through these transnational geographies of the same companies Mm. and the same counterinsurgency tactics being used to oppress. But also those forms of resistance across geographies from Ferguson to Palestine or Standing Rock to Palestine are also modes in which we can develop, I think, more transnational forms of resistance as well and and their generative and connected nature.
7: So there's a lot of gentrification in the area around the gym. It's changed loads, even since I started training there like five years ago um and because of that the gym has like they have the fighters group which which is where you train to fight i guess and then there's like beginner level groups that, there's like two or three beginner level groups beneath that and those groups have now got a lot more white middle class people in them right. but there are none in the fighters class and it's argued that it's because going back to habitus that white middle class people lack the I guess we'd say minerals, but like the disposition and sensibilities. Yeah, do, no. do you know what I mean? It's, Zero
0: sh- spice. No, no, Zero it's, spice. it's true.
7: Because of their <laughs> life experiences.
1: So you see them, so when I see them, so if I'm in that environment, I see them and I say, You look moist. You look moist. You don't fight. And I can see it in them. <laughs> I can see it in those spaces. We don't give people the chances sometimes.
7: No, I think in this in this context, it's not, it's just because it's not innate in them. It's just because, like, what Marvin Hagler said, didn't it? You can't get up at five in the morning if you're sit, sleeping in silk sheets. Mm. And I think that's the reality for some, like, it's just like it's a hard thing to do. It's fucking long. Like, why would you want to get beaten uh, up? No, no. But again, but then, like I said, in my experience, I've met people who are like that,
1: who are hard as fuck, man.
7: Yeah, but I and, think they're more and, like there's usually they've got demons that they're and, grappling.
1: Yeah, but see, like I said, but it, <laughs> I see people, and I like so it's time, it's, about, it's about giving people the chances, right? Yeah, of course. Like, giving that opportunity to prove themselves, and
0: I'm happy for them to be excluded from these spaces, guys. <laughs> no, listen, listen. <laughs> Oh yeah, can you
7: just, can you try and give a definition of habitus? Oh yeah, so I guess how, so I was trying to say, yeah, I came through it. And how you it. use it. So I came to it through Wakant's book, who, and I think this is a good way of explaining it. Yeah. And he deploys like an idea of a pugilistic habitus. as he says. And it's basically mm. like the matrix of perceptions. So like, and pre-reflexive activity required to do something. So a boxer would subconsciously, like beneath the level of consciousness, would be able to know how to like throw a jab cross, right? Whereas it would need explaining to someone else because it's not conscious. Sorry, because it then would need to be conscious, right? So in the same way, Bourdieu like initially deploys it around class. So you say upper class people, they they just know, they know what they're doing in certain situations. And I give a good example. My mate went to a wedding. Um, it was like working class, mixed race guy went to some white posh wedding, and then he was saying to me, "You have to wear, you have to wear." Um, I've never a dinner suit. I need a dinner suit, and he was just like. I don't know what a dinner suit is. And he was like, and then there's like, and he went and there was like, all this cutlery. Mm. And there's like, and someone looked at him like, oh, like, you're using the cutlery wrong, but he needed to consciously develop a knowledge of how to use the cutlery about the dinner jacket right but these posh white people had an in, an almost inbuilt innate knowing about how, how to behave what to do and what so, what capitals to deploy right they, they don't need to like set about in the same way in john i talk about john needing to read certain books they don't really need to because that's part of their cultural upbringing so it's like an so baudry would argue it benefits usually well he would say it recreates that power Mm-hmm. because people then s- submit themselves to their status right and we all people say that oh i'm not doing that's for white people or i'm not doing that it's not for me it's for people that aren't like me so it almost doesn't need direct oppression is what is what bourdieu would say mm-hmm. yeah. and i guess in the phd i talk about a racial habitus because i'm like we have an understanding of how to not just how to do our own race but how to recognize race on others and what that means and we make snap judgments on it and bourdieu would argue that's relate that's related to histories that predate us so we're we're living histories that predate us often in terms of the way we move the way we speak the way we think and feel as we move through the world and that seems subconscious to us but he, he would argue it's not innate yeah. it's because of like these histories Listen. and I guess I say people sorry I, I guess the last oh. thing I say is that I say in the PhD that like people attempt to break down the binary the ways of thinking about race they try to leave it behind but it comes back because of, this, of like the was it pulled the ju- to discourse? No, it? but you
0: you talk about the durability. the yeah, durabi- The durability and reproduction of racist thinking.
7: that's it. That's yeah, the one. That's what you that say. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, can I just say I'm going to give you a mic drop for that. Yeah. You know, yeah,
7: that, yeah for yeah. that
0: definition, very impressive yeah. definition on the spot. And also, this guy was talking saying so I'm don't I do not i do not know what I'm saying and whatever. you <laughs> you you know your shit. Like,
1: <laughs> this is really good. It's, it's what you know innately, right? When I'm walking down the street,
0: Wait, Can I just can I just when we're saying innately, we mean in terms of our. We don't want to sort of play into eugenics here no, we mean in terms no, of, no just for listeners yeah, yeah, we're yes, just so sir. how we are socialized yeah, yeah. so like how we are socialized from a very young age Yeah, yeah. thank you for listening to surviving society with shantel and tiso you can now continue the conversation with us on twitter and instagram if you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever expanding sociological imagination please support us via patreon
1: If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing.